Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington, D.C. This episode is sponsored, edited, and engineered by my friends at Law Pods. Law Pods is a professional podcast production company focused solely on attorney podcasting. I absolutely love working with them, and if you're considering becoming a legal podcaster or just want to learn more, check them out at lawpods.com. And now, let's get started. Hello, and welcome back. In today's episode, I'm excited to speak with Hilary Gerjoy, who's a vice chair of HWG LLP's Legal Ethics and Malpractice Group, where she focuses her work on legal ethics, white-collar defense, and complex civil litigation. Hillary has represented lawyers before various disciplinary bodies at both state and federal levels, including the USPTO's Office of Enrollment and Discipline and the DOJ's Office of Professional Responsibility. Hillary is deeply involved in the legal community. She's the vice chair of the DC Bar Rules of Professional Conduct Review Committee. She's on the ABA's Ethics and Professional Responsibility Committee. And she's on the DC Circuit's Admission and Grievances Committee. Wow, that's a lot of committee work. And I hope we can talk about both what they do and also what you've gained from doing that that work during our conversation. She also uses her expertise as an adjunct professor of professional responsibility at Georgetown Law, Hoya Saxa, and is a regular author in the legal and popular press on topics related to legal ethics. Hillary earned her JD from the University of California Berkeley School of Law, Go Bears, and her BA from the <laughs> University of Chicago, Go Phoenix. Welcome to the podcast, Hillary. Thanks for being here. I'm impressed that you know Go Phoenix. That's a nuanced one. <laughs> In a little known fact, I actually have a master's degree from the University of Chicago from before law school. So uh, plus I love college and university mascots. So that's sort of become one of my calling cards. Yeah, awesome. Well, look, let's start talking about you, Hillary. And I always like to start these discussions by learning a little bit about your path or decision to become a lawyer in the first place. So if you can think back to when and why you decided to join the profession, I'd love to hear a little about that. Yeah. So I'm one of those people who was always told by adults in my world that I should be a lawyer. I think often it was not a compliment, particularly from my mother who would (laughs) describe me as exacting, whereas I would like precise and logical. I did started out doing debate. Like we had a middle school debate team. And so I was in the middle school debate league and just loved it from the beginning. The subjects in school that I always liked the most were reading and writing intensive and things that involved oral advocacy. So I kind of always knew that that was going to be the path that I wanted to go on. And I got, and I was sort of encouraged along the way from teachers to say, you know, I think you would really love going to law school, whether or not you want to be a lawyer later on. I think it just is a great thing for you to do. And so I went to the University of Chicago undergrad. I had an amazing experience. It's a very intense academic experience. And so I wanted to take one year before going to law school to reset. And I had sort of an interesting path. I had applied to a number of paralegal positions in DC because I knew I wanted to go to law school and I just was sort of going to take a year to decide where I wanted to be. And then Google came and recruited on campus. Hmm. And I believe Google has since changed this policy, but they recruited at UChicago and at a number of schools for ad sales roles. So when the Google ads used to be on like the right-hand side panel, to sell those ads. Yeah. I don't know that I had a particular skill set in ad sales, but it sounded like a really cool job. So I ended up there and then I fell in love with Northern California. And so I went to Berkeley for law school, which was a great experience. I love that. And I guess before we dive into your everyday work as a legal ethics lawyer, I'm curious if 
any of the skills you developed being an ad salesperson for Google have contributed to your your legal career or your legal practice? I think it showed me that I don't like selling things. And that is... But I think one of the skill sets that it definitely taught is listening to people and listening to what's important to people. Mm. So when you are selling something, I think what all good salespeople will tell you is you really have to listen to the customer. And the truth is that being a lawyer is a client service industry, very, very much so. And a lot of lawyers don't necessarily think about it that way, but that really is what we're doing. And we have to listen to our clients and understand what they want and what their objectives are. So I think that that was useful and talking to people from sort of all different aspects of the business world, all different places to understand what their goals and objectives were. I think that's a useful, like universal skill. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's good that you have that skill and also found it wasn't what you wanted to do forever. I like to say to people on the podcast and to my students in the classroom that the two best things you can learn from a job are one, that it's the thing you want to do for the rest of your life. The second best, but it, and it's a close second, is I never want to do that job again. And it sounds like you both picked up the skills and figured out that law school is actually the right path. I think it's so true. I think it is really true. And, and that's been the case with sort of every internship and job I've had. You can, you see, and that's why I, I love when people do sort of lots of different things because hmm. it's really hard to be abstract to know what you're going to like doing unless you sort of see what other people do and what it looks like in real life. And so working at Google is really cool. It's a really cool company selling ads. I don't know, maybe, maybe not. And then you sort of get into the day to day and you see and you're like, well, this is not something that I love or I love this aspect, but not this aspect. So I'm appreciative that I had the opportunity to do it. And it also, I was really ready for to get back to law school. For sure. So before we dive into your everyday life, and I want to hear what it's like to work as a legal ethics lawyer, I was hoping we could talk a little bit about that term legal ethics, because I think there, for people who are either not in the legal profession or even some people who are in the legal profession, but not in this area, that term can sometimes be a misnomer. So how do you think about what you do in terms of ethics and professional responsibility for someone unfamiliar with those concepts? So the biggest thing that I think is important to know is that lawyers are governed by this separate set of rules and the separate body, separate and apart from law. So, and those are called the rules of professional conduct. And so the rules of professional conduct are promulgated in the first instance by the American Bar Association, which is a voluntary organization, but it publishes model rules of professional conduct. So there's a committee that gets together and says, this is what we think lawyers should do. And the motivation behind the rules is protecting the public is number one and maintaining the integrity of the profession. So what do we want to tell lawyers they have to do so that people in the world hear that somebody's a lawyer and they feel like they can trust that person. They feel like they're held to a certain standard. So the ABA has a set of model rules and then every jurisdiction in the U.S. adopts a version of those rules. There's some differences and nuances depending on the jurisdiction that you're in. And those rules govern how do you interact with clients? How do you interact with other lawyers? How do you interact with the court system? What kinds of disclosures? What kind of candor obligations do you have? How to conduct yourself as an advocate? How to conduct yourself as somebody who is helping clients in a distress situation? So that is the governing body. And everybody in law school has to take professional responsibility. It's sometimes called legal ethics, sometimes called professional responsibility. It is a required course at, in law schools. And in addition to taking the bar, once you graduate from law school, you also have to take the MPRE, which is an exam that tests you on those rules of professional conduct. 
And then for, I think, a lot of lawyers, it becomes a thing that goes to the back of your mind. Hmm. You sort of remember that you took professional responsibility. You remember that you took the MPRE, but it's really not a part of your practice. And what I do is deal with lawyers where it's an issue that comes up. So it's not something that any lawyer, all of my clients, my legal ethics clients are all lawyers exclusively. So when I representing those individuals, it can be in a, in a number of different ways. But when it comes up, it's there's some legal ethics issue in my practice. For example, I'm a divorce lawyer. I'm an immigration lawyer. I'm a transactional lawyer. I have a conflict. Conflicts are a huge one. How do I navigate this? I have a difficult client. I A client has accused me of violating one of the rules of professional conduct. What do I do? So that's where it sort of comes up for people is there's a problem or a potential problem on the horizon, or they want to avoid a problem. That's part of my favorite work to do is the counseling work to help people before a problem actually comes out. Yeah, I think that's an incredible sort of distillation and articulation of something that I agree with you. I think a lot of people don't think about before law school, and then they it quickly leaves their mind after they've sort of taken the licensure exams. And I'll just define one term that you used. Otherwise, I think all the terms got defined, and that's conflict, right? So what is a conflict for those who are unfamiliar with that concept? So the idea is because lawyers are advocates and that lawyers also have the obligation to be uh, truthful in their representations, they have to be mindful of who their clients can be. As a general matter, lawyers cannot represent clients who have adverse interests. There are two sets of conflicts rules. They get very complicated. At Georgetown, I teach multiple classes on conflicts, and it's a complicated idea. But what it boils down to is the idea that you cannot be an effective advocate if you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. Mm -hmm. If you're representing one client who wants something and you're representing another client who wants the opposite of that thing, there's no way that you can be providing diligent and zealous representation, which is one of the requirements under every rule of professional conduct, that that's what lawyers are supposed to do. Diligently and zealously represent their clients, and you're going to be impeded from doing that if you are advocating on behalf of competing interests. And talk to me a little bit, you know, we'll talk a little bit about your day-to-day life and dig into a little bit of the different sort of tasks you do, but I'm curious how you decided that this was going to be your area of practice, because it is an area of practice that I think a lot of lawyers, I think intuitively, might want to do given that it's about our profession, right? And so it's people who are interested in our profession it's not necessarily a particularly common or at least a particularly discussed practice area within the legal profession. So what brought you to this work? Absolutely. So I started out as a litigator, and I think everybody who does legal ethics and malpractice work is a litigator in the first instance. So it's viewing legal ethics work as a niche practice within the world of litigation. I uh, clerked for a judge out of law school, which I thought was an amazing experience, and I loved it. And I knew always, again, sort of going back to what My mother told me as a child, when she said I should be a lawyer, she meant I should be a litigator. Mm. She was not saying she that I should be a transactional lawyer, for example, (laughs) or a regulatory lawyer. She meant I should be arguing with people for a living. And so I knew I wanted to be a litigator. So I started out at a firm in DC, a boutique litigation firm, and did all kinds of commercial litigation. That is sort of a typical path, I think, for a lot of folks who are just starting out at a law firm. And then I moved to the firm that I'm at now, HWG, and I met somebody at the firm who was much more senior, who had been doing this work for 30 years. And he said, do you want to try this? Do you want to try legal ethics? Love that. And what I had always known was that 
the reason I liked litigation was not because of the subject matter. It was because of the way I was practicing law and what I was doing. And I sort of always knew that it didn't really matter what the underlying subject matter was. What I like to do is I like to research. I like to write. I like to write persuasively. I like to argue in court if I can. I like depositions. I like discovery. I like the nuts and bolts of what it means to do litigation. And so I can be interested in all kinds of subject matters as a result if I'm sort of doing the things on a day-to-day basis that are the things that I enjoy doing. And legal ethics was that. It's just, it's litigation in the context of lawyers. And so a lot of the cases that I do, the legal ethics cases I do are disciplinary cases. And so in that instance, sort of the prosecutor is bar counsel. In every jurisdiction, there is bar counsel. And then there's a a series of assistant bar counsel. So you can sort of think of it as who's the prosecutor and then all the assistant AUSAs, for example, who report to that person. And they issue bar complaints. And anybody in the public, any client, any judge can file a complaint against a lawyer. It goes to bar counsel. Bar counsel reviews it and sees, does it have any merit at all? And have you alleged a violation of the rules? Because people can complain about things that are not a violation of the rules. And what bar counsel is doing is really imposing and making sure that the rules of professional conduct are being followed by all lawyers in that jurisdiction. Sure. So bar counsel will send out and say, there's been a bar complaint against you. And then if I get hired by a lawyer, my job is to represent them in that process. So it's honestly very similar to criminal defense work, which Hmm. is another part of my practice. It really is just a different venue, but you're doing the same thing. And so you're figuring out what happened. You're putting together the factual story, which I always find really enjoyable. You're figuring out how the facts apply to the law, which requires a lot of expertise. I think in the legal ethics world, it is there's the body of law, there are ethics opinions. There's a lot of different places where you sort of have to understand how it all fits together. And then you file a brief, which is really a respondent's persuasive filing to say what has happened here to defend the conduct, to say it wasn't in fact a violation of the rules, or if it was, it was a mistake, and here's how things have been remedied, which is interesting because you don't do that in the criminal context. You don't admit in the criminal context that you violated the law. So that's one area in which it's different. And then the process goes through a series of steps, which honestly really does mirror the criminal justice system in a lot of ways there's a lot of sort of due process built into it. So you get to file this persuasive filing, the opposing, whoever filed the complaint against you gets to review it. Bar counsel then interacts with you and asks for additional information. If they have more questions, if they need documents, if they think that there are additional charges that need to be brought against you. And then at that point, the case can get dismissed. Like you can have persuaded bar counsel that there was not a violation. You can do negotiated discipline, which is like a plea deal. Mm -hmm. sort of the analogous way to think about it. Or it can go to a full-blown trial. And that is another part of it that I really enjoy because I really do like the trial work. And as I'm sure you've heard from so many people on your podcast who do litigation, trials are really rare. Most cases just do not go to trial. And a lot of people become litigators because they like trial and that's what they want to do. And it's sort of a harsh reality when they realize like, oh, wait, like I might never go to trial. And In my just litigation career, doing pure litigation for eight years, I went to trial once. That like that, and that'll just sort of tell you how cases settle. That's just the reality. Right. But disciplinary cases, because it's your bar license on the line, a lot of those cases do not result in negotiated discipline and they do go to trial. Hmm. And that is a really enjoyable 
thing to do because you get the experience of trial, but the motivation I find to be really powerful because you're helping people get back to the practice of law and get back to the thing that they want to do. And if I think for myself, like what's the most important things in my life, it's my friends and family and my ability to be a lawyer. Like that's really like, that's what gives me drive and what is significant to me. And so I'm dealing with people who have this thing that's deeply important to them on the line and can often resolve the issue for them, which is, again, not always the case in litigation. Like in litigation, even if you win, the client is usually feels like they've spent way too much money and it's been too expensive. Sure. And, but in, in the work that I do, like I can avoid problems and like they can win and then they can go on with their life and go back to the practice of law. And that's a very gratifying experience. Wow. I love that. I love hearing that process. And even as somebody who's gone through all of this and been a little, been a practicing litigator and taken all those exams, I don't think I captured uh, or could have captured sort of that process and the importance of that process. If anything, I think sometimes colloquially lawyers think of disciplinary actions as kind of without real remedy, right? They're rules, they're passed by the ABA, but the remedy, as you say, is someone's professional livelihood. And that's an incredibly important part of who we are and what we do. Are there other sort of practical differences of a trial versus sort of a uh, trial in the sense of doing a disciplinary action? Timelines, types of documents, types of witnesses, what are some of the other differences? Yeah, the biggest difference is that the rules of evidence don't apply there. So it's a much more lenient standard. So you're not going to have, and disciplinary hearings are open to the public. So I actually, all of my Georgetown students will watch a hearing. You can find them on YouTube just because it's interesting to see how it plays out. And you can actually sit in the courtroom in the DC Court of Appeals if you, if you want to listen to one, but you won't hear all the objections that you hear, right? When you go to trial and like every two seconds, the judge is sort of deciding whether or not something is admissible or not admissible. That's a big difference. Document production, everything is on a smaller scale, which is I also find to be really nice because you can sort of get your arms around everything as a couple of people doing it. Whereas with a trial, you know, the trial teams that I've been on can be 10, 15 people. You know your slice of the case, but no one person is going to know everything because there's millions of documents. There's not millions of documents in disciplinary cases. There's hundreds of documents, usually, maybe sometimes thousands of documents, but enough that you really can be an expert in all of it. You have experts in the same way, but you have experts who are testifying as to what the standard of care is in the profession. Mm -hmm. So in the same way that you'd have experts at a trial, but their, their expertise is sort of usually limited to particular questions about sort of what would a reasonable lawyer have done under the circumstances. The other huge difference, which is, I think, a very surprising thing for people to learn is in DC, you go in front of a hearing committee is the first step. The hearing committee is two lawyers and one non-lawyer volunteer member of the public. So that is a rolling the dice situation. So just hmm. like with when you appear in front of a judge, it depends on who the judge is and how the judge sort of typically rules on things. Sure. But it's a lawyer. <laughs> it's a lawyer who's a judge and does this professionally. Whereas one of the people on the hearing committee is just a member of the public. It tends to be people who are a little bit older, sometimes retired people who are just involved in the community and find this to be interesting. Yeah. But you have to tailor everything you're doing to explain it to a true lay person. And I think part of why they do it that way is because 
again, going back to sort of what I was saying at the beginning is like the motivation is protecting the public. And so the idea is like, what does a member of the public think about what this conduct was? And then they write a an opinion, and then that opinion goes to the Board of Professional Responsibility that ultimately makes a determination and a recommendation. That goes to the D.C. Court of Appeals. D.C. Court of Appeals says decides on what the discipline is. And so that's another sort of key difference is, is how the tribunal is comprised. Yeah, that's a huge, a huge difference. It's like, I don't know, I, I don't want to mix metaphors, but like it's a mix between a judge, a jury, a regulatory board. And the prosecutors like participating in the proceedings, it does have a slightly different flavor, even if there are some similarities to the typical criminal justice system. Absolutely. You've talked a little bit about the steps this sort of proceeding might go through, but talk to me a little bit about what your day is like, right? How many clients matters are you working on in a day? Are you doing mostly writing? Are you doing mostly fact discovery? Is it sort of a mix? What would I see if I followed you around? Yeah. So I, one of the things I like a lot is that my day is varied. So I do have a lot of clients and I tend to probably work on four to six different matters on a daily basis. That's a sort of typical process. And I do a lot of different things for different people. So I usually have some disciplinary cases that are going on, right? So somebody is in some stage of this process, if Mm -hmm. we're in the discovery process, if we're in motions practice. I do a lot of admissions work. So that is helping people get admitted to the DC and Maryland bars. And so that is its own unique process because when you, after you take the bar exam and the MPRE, you apply to get admitted in a jurisdiction. There are a whole host of reasons why people might have trouble with that process. I recently represented somebody who had been charged, had received five criminal charges for Crimes he did not commit it were very, very clearly the result of racial profiling in the South. And he was denied admission to a bar that was not DC initially. And that bar said, because on your bar application, you have to say, have you ever been charged with a crime? And he said, yes, here's what I was charged with. I didn't do any of these things. And the other jurisdiction said, you've been denied admissions. And he contacted me and wanted to be admitted in DC. We put together a brief on his behalf. We had a whole number of character witnesses. And then we went in front of the Committee on Admissions, which is a volunteer committee in D.C. made up of lawyers who are in D.C. And you have a hearing. And you and I present my argument in favor of why this person is worthy of being admitted. I present my character witnesses. I have direct exams of those witnesses. And then the hearing committee can do crosses if they want to, which they often do. You have a closing statement. And then the hearing committee renders a decision and he was admitted to the bar. And that was an amazing result because his life changed, right? Like he was a being a paralegal versus able to be a practicing lawyer, particularly after he had gone to law school and gone through all of these processes. Sure. So that's another big piece of work I do. I also represent people in front of the committee on the unauthorized practice of law. So that's another one that people are maybe not as familiar with, but it's actually really quite important because it can impede your career if you don't follow the rules to the T in the U.S. because every jurisdiction operates differently. You have to be admitted in the jurisdiction in which you practice. There are certain exceptions. In D.C., the Committee on the Unauthorized Practice of Law is, again, a volunteer committee made up of lawyers that is charged with seeing who is practicing law in D.C., who's not allowed to practice law in D.C. And the 
reason that they exist is that, again, protection of the public. We want people, we want only lawyers who are admitted in D.C. to practice in D.C. so that we can make sure we can regulate them. Because if they're not admitted in our jurisdiction, we can't regulate what they're doing. And so if you are practicing in D.C. or the committee believes that you are and you're not allowed to be, you'll get a, a letter from the Committee on the Unauthorized Practice of Law. And I help people in front of that committee as well. So that usually is one or two of the cases that's going on at any given time. Hmm. And then a lot of the work I do is helping lawyers as outside general counsel to their firms. So a lot of small firms or solos who don't have a dedicated general counsel, the kinds of questions that you go to for general counsel. So for your audience, what, what a general counsel does is they are a lawyer at a firm. They often are also a practicing lawyer themselves. Sometimes it's a je- dedicated job. It sort of depends on the size of the firm. Right. And their job is to be the ethics counselor at the firm. So a lawyer says, I have two clients. Is this a conflict? Can I take this new matter on in light of a matter that Bob, who also works at the firm, has? Right. I'm having a fee dispute with the client. How do I do that? How do I navigate that? This client is being particularly difficult or uncommunicative. This judge has said something to me and I'm concerned about how it's going to impact the case. So I do that on a, I get hired by law firms to do that for them about sort of particularly dicey issues that they have. And I also get hired to help people set up law firms. So this will be individuals who usually started at another firm. Sometimes they started in big law. Sometimes they just started at a smaller firm and they want to set up shop. And I help them in that process. I also help people dissolve law firms because that's a whole nother process is figuring out how to navigate. Wow, you have a very busy day. I love this. This is fascinating. There's a lot of different pieces to it, which I and I find that to be really very interesting because it keeps the day dynamic. Right. And a lot of my day is talking to my clients, which is when I was doing just a general litigation practice and representing like some huge Fortune 50 company, I never spoke to anybody, right? I never I sat in my office and I did document review. I drafted briefs. I drafted deposition outlines, but I was never talking to the client. And with the work I do now, I'm talking to the clients constantly. And that I also find to be particularly fun. Hmm. And when you're communicating with clients, what are the ways that you're communicating with those clients? Are you like on the phone all day? Are you making PowerPoint presentations? Are you sending emails? Are you drafting briefs? I always like to sort of dig in because I think people forget how impactful those questions are to what your day-to-day life is. And I guess I'm curious what kinds of communication you're doing on a daily basis. Yes, a lot of phone calls and a lot of emails. And then I do a lot of writing myself, which then gets sent to the client and then the clients edit them and redline them and we go back and forth. But the interactions with the clients are Mm -hmm. usually phone calls and then a lot of emails back and forth, depending on sort of how discreet the issues are. No PowerPoints. The PowerPoints I do are are reserved specifically for doing continuing legal education, which is another sort of piece that I enjoy doing. Got it. But yeah, the communications with the clients, it's a much less formal interaction Mm -hmm. than, again, it is when you're representing sort of a big company. Like if I have a question or if my client has a question, we just pick up the phone and we call each other in a way that there's lots of practice areas that that's just sort of not typical or how it's done. Got it. And I guess my last question about sort of your day-to-day practice is, if someone's hearing this and saying, this sounds like this could actually be an interesting area of practice for me either someday or today if they're already practicing, what might they look in the mirror and see or look at their skill sets and see that would say to them, yeah, this might be a good practice area for you to consider 
or by contrast, what are some things that, that might be red flags for them entering the same kind of practice that you do? I think two big things. One, I think you have to really like talking to lawyers because your client base is going to be lawyers. So you need to be, I'm a lawyer's lawyer, Hmm. right? And I love that. And I love talking to lawyers. I find we speak the same language. We talk quickly. I'm not told I talk too quickly. Sometimes I am, but we, (laughs) we relate to each other in a common way. And I just have found that like, when I meet a lawyer in the world, I have something to talk to that lawyer about. So you have to just enjoy being among lawyers, I think is the big one. I think the other thing that is really the key to success doing this work is having really good social and emotional intelligence and empathy because you're dealing with people who are in a really, really hard situation and you have to put yourself in their shoes to figure out the best way to represent them. And there's a little bit of the job that is sort of like therapy because you're helping people in this really, in this moment of crisis. And I think that has to be something where that is motivating to you. It can be draining as well. I know a lot of people who do direct services work where it can be really hard, but I think you have to enjoy that. And and so if people in your life have told you like, you're a great listener, or I'm telling you something and I, you know, you're the kind of person that I tell things to, and I don't really tell people everybody this, but I'm sharing it with you. I think those are the kinds of things, like if you're told that in your life, that is the kind of skill set that I think serves you really well for this type of work. And where do you think this type of work is going sort of in the near future and the the more distant future? And I mean, I just can think of a couple of examples off the top of my head. You talked about the unauthorized practice of law. That has significantly changed in the whatever stage of the pandemic. We're in the, the pre-post-pandemic stage of Zoom lawyering and people practicing all over the country and internet law is one area, conflicts is another, technologies brings a whole host of issues with it. Where do you sort of see this kind of work going in the, in the future? I think AI is going to be a huge category for this work. So if people had followed the ChatGPT case where the lawyers in New York filed a brief, it was drafted by ChatGPT, that was a big no-no. I think a lot of lawyers and a lot of young lawyers are going to be utilizing AI. I think there are huge benefits, but there are all kinds of ethical traps. So mm-hmm. I think that's going to be another thing that we're going to see coming on the horizon. I think the unauthorized practice of law, again, as you pointed out, is a huge one because in this sort of post-pandemic world, like where do people move and where yeah. do people live? And people live in different places and they don't go to the office five days a week. And that's very different. And I think the rules will modernize. I think the rules were written at a time where that just no one could sort of conceive of this as the reality. So I think that is certainly going to change. I think in terms of the substance of what the cases are, what you're seeing, particularly in DC, is there's a ton of legal ethics and malpractice work around Trump and the election. Mm -hmm. Um, That is a, a big category of like sort of how are politicians who also happen to be lawyers using the political process in ways in which the model rules of professional conduct have a view and have a view as to whether or not they can or cannot be doing it. And so a lot of the cases that have been happening against, you know, Sidney Powell and John Eastman and Giuliani, those are all because those people are also lawyers, right? They're, they're political actors, but they're also lawyers. And I think that we're seeing a lot more of those cases happening. Hmm. Fascinating. One of the other things that I noticed about your bio is that you do a lot of committee work. So not only are you a lawyer's lawyer, you are also part of the lawyers serving other lawyers, serving the legal community. And I guess I'm curious, 
why you get involved in that work and sort of what you gain, not from any specific organization, but just from the idea of being a part of these kinds of lawyer bodies? Yeah. So I think as a lawyer, it's really helpful and important and motivating to be part of the profession in a broader sense of what you sort of do in your day-to-day practice. The reason I got involved in the Rules of Professional Conduct Review Committee, and that's the committee that makes the rules. So I was saying, you know, the model rules, and then every state has its adopts its own rules. I'm on the committee that makes those rules in DC. Having done this work, I developed a strong viewpoint about which of those rules I think are not quite right. <laughs> um, and I have perspective on on some of those rules that I think need to change to better serve the public and also better serve lawyers. So it was partly just an intellectual interest in what I thought needed to happen and to change, but also being motivated by having represented clients and feeling like they were treated unjustly because the rules were stacked against them in certain ways, particularly against solo and small firm practitioners. Some of the rules are really draconian. And so they end up protecting lawyers who work in an infrastructure where they have a huge accounting department, for example. But if you make an accounting mistake, you put some money that is client money in the wrong place. It's a presumptive six-month suspension in DC. That rule disproportionately affects people who do not work as a at a big firm. Hmm. So that was my motivation for being on that committee. I also just really like legal ethics work. I find it really interesting and I like writing about it and talking to people about it. And so being involved in committees that sort of do this work, I find to be an interesting process. The DC Circuit Admissions Committee, my motivation for joining that was I want to see how the judges make the decisions, right? So that that committee is people who come before the judges of the DC Circuit appoint six lawyers who serve three-year terms and they help to decide who gets admitted to practice in front of the DC Circuit. So when there are questions about whether or not somebody has committed a certain ethical violations or uh, has a criminal history, for example, should that person get allowed to be admitted in, in front of the DC Circuit? And then we hold hearings and we hear the those lawyers present their cases about why they should. And I think it's really very useful if you have a litigation practice to try to also be able to be in a tribunal setting. Sure. Because you just have, you see a very different side of it and you get better at doing it. I think that's part of why clerking is such an amazing opportunity because you get, as a junior lawyer, the ability to evaluate litigants and see like, oh, I really like that tactic. I think that's super persuasive. Yes. I don't like how that person was talking. That came off as condescending to the judge. That came off as really humble and therefore made me be more open to that point of view. You get all of this information that is really unique and then helps you to figure out sort of how to do what you want to do better. Absolutely. I tell my students all the time, the opportunity to work for someone in a judge-like or judge position at any point in your law school career, whether that's an intern or a law clerk, is like being a part of a decider's brain makes you so much better when you're trying to then persuade those people in the future. So I think that is a really, really great point. I guess the other question I have about those committees is not just how do you join them, but how do you make an impact? Like, how do you you don't want to just join a committee because it sort of you show it shows up on your resume. It's also an opportunity to be a part of the legal community and to to give back. And I guess I'd be curious how you think about doing that work alongside your other busy day job. Yeah, I think it's all about making connections with other people. And so I think getting involved in a committee and then finding two things, finding the piece of it where you can contribute, right? Because that I think it's easy to join a committee and then just sort of be a passive member of it. And you show up to meetings, but it doesn't really add to your life. 
find an initiative that the committee is working on or an initiative that you want to bring to the committee and sort of join in and find your slice of it. And then find your people, find the people on the committee that you relate to, that you like talking to, to develop friendships. Because I think the practice of law can often be a a pretty isolating experience. Hmm. I think I'm lucky to interact with my clients a lot, but I know lots of lawyers who go days without sort of talking to anybody because you can be doing work that just is very solitary. And I think having meaningful relationships that are professional relationships, not just where you work, but in the broader legal community. I think it opens your your mind to different ways of practicing law. And I think it is it makes it a much more fulfilling life as a lawyer versus I know a lot of lawyers who feel lonely because they don't have that. And I think it adds another sort of richness to your daily life. Hmm. Yeah. And for some people, right, they want to be library lawyers. They want to be the kind of people that are sort of like doors shut head down, big book, and that's it. But I think for a lot of people, as you said, that could, that is not the most exciting way or not a sustainable way to practice. And it's why I constantly tell people and hear from different people on this podcast about the importance of knowing not just the area you want to practice in. And this goes back to something you said earlier of like, you probably could have done this in other areas but it just so happens that you found an area that fits to your skill set and how you want to be spending your day. Yep, absolutely. So I have two more questions before we finish up. And the, and the first is the question that I sort of have been thinking about since my first day of law school, which is we have these rules for lawyers. And at times, the phrase legal ethics makes me think of sort of like big picture ethics, morality, should lawyers be doing this? Or should people be doing this? But then there's also these rules, which are basically a set of law that says this is what you can and can't do, regardless of sort of big picture morality. How do you see that tension or do you see that tension in your practice as somebody who works in this area? I think that the rules are created with the idea of serving the objective that you articulated, which is what should this look like? What is the ideal? What is the platonic ideal of of lawyering, right? And that's where the rules come from. Yes. I think what you see in practice is there is nuance and complication and the sort of daily life sometimes conflicts with that. And so I see there are instances in which people are, are absolutely operating. And I'd say the vast majority of my clients are operating from that perspective of like, I want to do the right thing. However, I made a mistake, right? We're human beings. People make mistakes. I missed a filing deadline. I forgot to file a motion when I was supposed to file a motion. Uh, you know, so I, I truly just made sort of human error. Or I misunderstood. I thought I was allowed to do something, but I but it turns out I'm not allowed to do something. So I think that there doesn't... T- I don't sort of tend to see attention in the way that most lawyers are acting. Now, there are certainly lawyers who are doing things that are highly unethical, and that we see in the press. And I write about it a lot because I I find it really interesting because I do believe that the purpose of the rules is really a protection mechanism. And when people are sort of flagrantly flouting those rules and violating those rules, I think that's really important because I think it has a broader impact on the public's perception of what it means to be a lawyer and it undermines the integrity of the profession. So I think that there has been some tension that I've seen much more recently. Mm-hmm. But in my day-to-day practice, I'd say that those sort of competing ideals tend to be more aligned than in competition with one another. 
Wow. And when you say that you're writing about this kind of stuff, like what drives you to also write on top of your service and on top of the writing and advocacy you do you do for your clients? I find it truly interesting. And I also just really like writing. And I think when things started to happen with particularly with respect to the election to the 2020 election, I had a reaction to it. I as somebody who does this work for a living and thinks about legal ethics all the time. I had a knee jerk reaction to some of the stuff that I saw happening. And I wanted to do something about it. And I have this area of expertise. So I could write about what I thought were problematic behaviors. That's a big part of it too. And it's also a really good way for me to just get my name out there and for people to know who I am and what I do. Because oftentimes, if I do my job well, I don't see a client more than once. Hmm. And so I have to have some kind of a a presence so that people know I have this sort of niche issue. Because again, the work I do is not the nuts and bolts of what people are doing every day. So I have this sort of weird problem in my practice that I've never had before. Who do I go to to talk about it? And so writing is another way to sort of help people know that I'm available to represent them. That's great. And it's a little bit different than uh, going back to your Google sales job and having to sell yourself uh, <laughs> using those techniques. I think writing probably fits your skill set. And also, if you can both build your brand and do it in an enjoyable and authentic way, I think, at least from what I've seen from lawyers, those are often the happiest lawyers. Absolutely. And look, so we're coming to the end of our, our conversation together. And I always like to end by asking for a piece of advice, something that you wish you knew when you were just starting out or just starting law school or something that you share with people who are entering our profession? What's something that you'd leave with for those folks? There are always opportunities to pivot. No decision is the end. And it often feels like as you're sort of going into the legal profession that doors are closing behind you. With every decision you make, a series of doors are closing. And that is true. But there are so many ways to practice law and there are so many ways to leverage different skill sets. So I think take the pressure off a little bit and go with what is interesting to you. Go with what is motivating to you. Um, go where you, if you have a competitive advantage, it's easy to yes. live in the space in which you have a competitive advantage. That's not to say that you have to, but it is easier. But also know that when you make certain choices, there are opportunities to change. I know so many people from law school who are doing very different things than what they started out doing. And I think that's one of the real benefits of, of being a lawyer is that you've developed this fundamental skill set that is transferable to a lot of different things. So I think that that's my biggest takeaway is to not feel so much pressure about getting it exactly right each time because you'll learn something and you, you'll ultimately end up in a place that makes you happy. Fantastic. Well, that's a great note to leave on. And I'm just grateful to you, Hillary, for coming on and sharing so openly about your practice and everything that's adjacent to your practice. I have to say, I interview lawyers, a lot of lawyers, and your practice area to me, and again, I'm not saying that's all my listeners, but to me sounds like one of the most exciting. And so I'm so glad you were, you could be the mouthpiece for it. And we could also hear your personal story along the way. So thank you so much for doing this. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Again, I'm Jonah Perlin, and this is the How I Lawyer podcast. Thanks to podcast sponsor Law Pods for their expert editing. If you're a lawyer considering starting your own podcast, definitely check them out at lawpods.com. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you'll consider sharing it with friends and colleagues or on social media. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please sign up for the email list at howilawyer.com or subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, if you have comments, suggestions, or ideas for the show, please reach out to me 
at howilawyer at gmail.com or at Jonah Perlin on Twitter. Thanks again for listening and have a great week. 